there's one thing the start to the summer test has highlighted, it is that the gap between North and South has never been tighter. The Rugby Paper podcast has come back at the perfect time to preview the final weekend of the summer series. Joining me to do so are columnists Brendan Gallagher and Chris Hewitt, and none other than former Bath and England prop Gareth Chilcott. Right, we've had two, three weeks off, something like that. Um, we're now back, we're midway, midway through the summer tests. I'm rejoined by Chris Hewitt. How are you doing, Chris? Very well, thank you, Ollie. Very well. Good. Great to have you back. And we are joined by England and Bath prop Gareth Chilcott. How are you, Gareth? Very well, Ollie. Thanks. Very well. How's your summer treating you? Are you roasting in wherever you are, like I am currently here? Well, I'm down in I'm down in Army, Bristol, in the West Country. But I, yeah, I've been away a few times and off on a couple more holidays before the season starts. So yeah, summer's been good to me. What are you are you still in and around rugby then? Yeah, I, I really. I mean, I've still got my sports travel business, so that's it's been a tough couple of years. No crowds into grounds and no travel, so it's been tough. But we've come through it. And looking forward to the next Lions. We did okay with cricket in the West Indies, uh, and then obviously we got Rugby World Cup in France, which is with the summer tours going on. Everything, everyone's bubbling for position in confidence in you know uh, bragging rights. So it's it's going to be fantastic. And for the first time that I can remember, I actually think the Northern Hemisphere side have got a huge opportunity to to wrestle it off, off the Southern Hemisphere. You're watching the summer tests, I presume. Did you watch? I, I've watched all of them, yes. I've yeah. been watched for the last two Saturdays. This Saturday, I'll have to somehow find out because I'm, I'm actually in America for three days on business. So um, I'm going to have to try and find it various hours, pubs it will show, an Irish pub, an Irish booze will show it. Okay, so you're going to have to navigate the, t- the time yes. difference. Yeah, and I, I, Irish pub tends to do the trick in the States, doesn't it? Yeah, it does. Good stuff. Well, every time we have an English player or English ex-player on, I talk to them about English selection in the modern day. And obviously a front row yourself, I'm going to ask you, please, for your starting England front row. Imagine the World Cup's tomorrow. The World Cup final, sorry, is tomorrow. Who are you picking? Yes. Well, it would be the one that starts on probably Saturday. It would be, it would be the, the Bath boy, the Bristol boy, Ellis Genge, obviously now a Bristol boy. Uh, Stuart at uh, Bath, and I would go for Jamie George. So really, the front row, it's been doing reasonably well down in Australia. You think Stuart has played him? Obviously, Carl Sinclair would arguably be the, the, the incumbent yeah, on I, that three shot. Yeah, I agree. I just think yeah, I'm a great believer in uh, picking on form. And Carl Sinclair had played at the end of last season. You know, he won his best. He's obviously an international forward and got every opportunity to push his way into the team. But at the moment, I, I'm very comfortable with the England front row. Um, when you've got people like uh, Mako Winnipeg that can come on for the last 20 and make an impact. Yeah, I'm reasonably happy with the front row at the moment. And it's, you know, it's still a year to go or so to the World Cup. And I just think they're they're young enough to, to keep getting on form. Yeah, I would go for the front row they got that. Okay. And who are your finishers? Who's coming off the bench? Uh, well, really, uh, Karen Dickey uh, yeah. for hooking. I would go for uh, uh, Mako on the on loose head and obviously got a singular tight head. Yeah. So that would be my finishing front row. If they've got to finish, I'd like to see a front row forward go the whole game. Yeah. We've very had rare that. nowadays. Yeah. Very, very rare. We've, we've had plenty of conversations of, about that. I on bet this you podcast. have. Yes. And speaking of finishers, we've just had a late substitute or a late addition to the, to the four. Brendan. <laughs> Hi, Brendan. Can you hear me? Plus, yeah. Can you hear me? Yeah. Hear you. Yeah, Absolutely fine. A full scale argument going on in the street. There's, Next door neighbours digging the garden up and some blokes arrived to 
take the muck and they're not getting on very well. So it was a bit of a fisty cut out on the oh, street. Oh, I miss all the good on. stuff, Brendan. I'm Where are you when I need you, Cooch? <laughs> good to see you, mate. Brendan, you're looking comparatively clean shaven. We were just talking about the ability to grow a beard. You've got rid of all of yours. Well, yeah, I, I saw the weather forecast and thought it's yeah. time to <laughs> trim down a bit. I was going to say to you, Gareth, surely that beard is not helping in 35 degree heat or whatever we're going to be in this. Well, I've, all, I've, always, I've always had facial hair from the old days. I had the old Mexican big moustache and now I've always had a beard. I've, it hides two or three of my chins. So I'm, I'm more than happy. <laughs> Uh, yeah, so I, I don't mind. I don't move very quickly to get sweaty, to be honest. Now, Australia, England. Gareth, obviously, you toured Australia with the Lions in 1989. You were the first team to win a Lions series coming from 1-0 down, if I'm not mistaken. And I still think we're the only team yeah. to. I, you know, a couple of years ago with New Zealand, they ended up 1-0 with a one draw. All. I mean, crazy. We'd like to see results, don't we? But, uh, yeah, so you're right. Correct. So... Do you draw parallels or rather what memories do you have from especially the build up to that decider? Obviously, this week, England count, they're building up to a decider, a winner takes all match. What memories do you recall from being in Australia during that week long period? Well, I, you know, you're, you're looking at a different era, you know. I mean, that particular Lions Tour in 89 was the last Lions Tour not to have any sponsorship or sorry, not the last, the last tour, but yeah, not to have any sponsorship. There was no sponsorship on the shirts. You know, Findy Calder was captain. It was a, a good balanced Lions squad from a lot from each country that I always feel that the Lions do better when there's a even mix rather than all English or all Scottish or all Welsh. And, and, and really, it was just Australia were at a bumper start. Uh, we came back, but it was, it was one of those, it was also the last of the real big tours. In, and I think Chris and Brendan was probably on it. You know, you're not talking of the fluffy, you know, three and a half, four week tours now for Lions. It's, it's very much more of a, a few months down under. So you had time to build up to that last test. It wasn't just from second test to third test, even though that was quite, it was only a week or so. But it's all the work you did before with all the games, midweek games, the spirit, the, the teamwork, the characters it brought on that tour. Um, and, and that's what I think made the last week of that tour, pretty easy, really. really. We were pretty confident as a squad. And, of course, that wasn't the last game. We also had to play Anzacs in Brisbane. Anzac, yeah. <laughs> yeah, you know, which was captained by Sean Fitzpatrick and all the old, the old Blacks came along again to try and make us go in with our tail between our legs. So it was a good tour. It was a lot of good players, a lot of decision makers. So my, my reaction was it was never really in doubt, Oliver. It was always going to be especially after the second win. It was, we were always confident we were, as a squad we were going to win the third. It was and also, Cooch, absolutely transformative that for, for Australian rugby, wasn't it? Because did I think I'm right in saying that that sparked pretty much a wholesale change in selection policy because when they won the World Cup in 91, there were a lot of young players who hadn't played in that series. So I think you you, you guys probably um, you know ended a few ended a few Wallaby careers uh, during. Yeah, that. I mean they, there, there's no doubt, Chris. You're totally right. The sort of Australians were probably just on the wane then that particular vintage of Australians. Um, and and of course there was a lot of youngsters in the squad. A young Gus Gut, for example, and 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 it was uh, Ian McGeekin's first tour. So he changed the sort of ethos of how Lions tours trained and what they did and. You know, they enjoyed themselves within the rules and got on with it. So, you know, it, for me, it was just what I, I, we like to call it a forgotten tour, you know, because 
there wasn't so much media as there is on Lions tours now. Everybody was looking at the professional era. Um, I mean, we have reunions now, and it's, it's fantastic because we're the only Lions squad that don't advertise that reunion. We don't have corporate tables. We don't have tables of 10 and there's only two players on each. We just meet up, maybe in the Cardogan Club in London, the whole squad who can make it. We all pay for ourselves and we just have a reunion where phones are off, everybody gets drunk and everybody has a good time reminiscing and a bit of nostalgia. You know, we, the, the, we don't have these big, you know, Lions reunions when you've got every big blue chip company taking part in it. No media, no nothing. It's just the boys together. And I think that was the last tour that you could really do that. And we still do it now. So, Are you serious that David tour. Soul actually pays for himself, Cooch? David Soul actually pays himself, yes. He, he, otherwise, he gets a cuff around the ear. Not all, <laughs> John Jeffrey don't always pay for himself. He, he tries <laughs> to play his, his Scottish RFU flag. But no, uh, no we, all, we all chip in when we can. But of course, we're, we're well overdue when we covid um, it's um, it's going there, and of course, Clive Rowland's got blessing. He's getting to the age and bits and bobs, and there's lots of people getting to the age where, sadly, we go to funerals more than we go to weddings. Yeah, that's a yeah. Um, well, look, sorry, that's not a doubt. <laughs> no, 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 no. <laughs> everybody. Anyone got a number for the Samaritans? <laughs> they'd even they'd they'd, they'd ring up on you. Don't worry. Yeah, they'd I don't put really the phone know. down on you, Chris. No, well. <laughs> don't really know how to respond to that. Um, let's get back to the rugby. So, obviously, yeah, there are a ton of differences. Professional, non-professional era, yeah. eight-week, yeah. six- to eight-week tour, etc. But you're still, you know, thousands and thousands of miles from home in a country where you are obviously not hated by the locals, but they want to get under your skin. So That's what, Australians. Well, exactly. But, yeah. you know, what do you remember from that sort of process and how you know, that the, the England players would currently be feeling as well, i.e. whenever they leave the hotel, they might get, you know... Well, I, I, I actually think that we probably got it more than they have uh, because back in them days, we could go out in the night and go wandering and go out to a, a steak restaurant and stuff. And I think nowadays in the professional era, and I might be wrong, but they're very much more restricted to one hotel, one training camp, where we were on a, a tour where every three days we'd be somewhere else, you know. It's not so much now and certainly... Uh, England in this current Australian tour wouldn't have been, or I'd have played in Perth, but they'd have been straight after the game, probably straight over to um, Brisbane for the second test. So they don't actually get out to see, they might get out to a shopping mall occasionally, but they don't actually get out and see too much. They'd be, it's a professional era, they'd be in training camp or whatever. So, uh, you know, I'm not so sure, unless they read the papers or the social media, I'm not so sure they'd know how much of the sort of Australians will be giving them stick. But I, I always I always find with the Australians particularly that, um, that they're a great sporting nation. You know, I mean, rugby union's way down their list of priorities, but they still know their sport. And, um, you know, I think they respect good sides. I, if, I, if I'm being frank, I think both England and Australia look pretty poor. You know, I, I don't so sort of going to worry anybody in this World Cup in France. Lots of things you can talk about, all the pluses and negatives, uh, the positive for England last week was it. The first half, they looked manful. They, phys- they physically done Australia, but um, they're far from the finished article at the moment. And, well, this is what I was, what my next point was going to be, is has it been the series we expected so far? Obviously, we've got two teams that are very much going through this 
be patient with us. We're not the finished article yet. Obviously, how much longer? And Brendan, I'm going to bring you in here. How much longer do we wait until we're looking at teams and saying, right, actually, we can start forecasting how the World Cup is going to go rather than buying into all this stay patient. Um, well, you may say nonsense. I, I would also say nonsense because uh, we're only a year out. But yeah. Well, it seems to me, um, where, where do you start from? Uh, England have left it very late, haven't they, to do their, their, their sort of broad sweep. They are now doing their broad sweep. And, you know, it's great to see people like uh, Jack Van Portfleet, who is a really good player. And I wanted him in a year ago, 18 months ago. He, I think, is going to accelerate right through and be the starter. Harry Arundel, or Henry Arundel, sorry, he's shown a bit already. They're calling the shots at centre. We discussed a couple of weeks ago what they might do at centre. Uh, Ludlam's coming through like a train at Planker, but again, we've known that for eight, you know, a year at least. So it's it's all in a state of flux still, which in one way is quite nice. But I wish we were in this state of flux a year ago. Uh, it's it's going to be very very rushed to bring all those talents. Some can they hang on? Some can they develop quick enough? Get that all together for this time next year. It, it's it's a rush, and and he's going to need a few things to go his way. I think, uh, Eddie. I commend you for mentioning Arundel. You mentioned him ages ago, maybe three months ago or four months ago on the podcast, before even that London Irish try. Uh, and he's obviously now coming to the fore. Did you want him to start last game? Obviously, many expected him to be drafted in after his impact in the first test. Uh, actually, I'm OK with um, Eddie not starting him at the moment. You could start him, but um, you know England have got some good quality on the wing. That was a match that absolutely had to be won last week you know do you not pick Jack now for that sort of match I don't think so I think you keep him in there so you know and he's obviously got that ability to be an impact player but I think then they're going to get the best out of him in the World Cup he has to be a fully seasoned test player with seven or eight appearances of some variety under his belt and he has to be able to you know take a game by the scruff of the neck which I think he can do but you know he is a potential big match winner in 15 months time so he's got he's got to be accelerated fairly quickly now if we look at the forwards um very quickly one player who has maybe i know chris you admitted on the podcast a few weeks ago that you weren't necessarily his biggest fan but he may have played him back himself back into not only your favor but eddie's too is billy vunapola yellow card in the first test but do you think he's gone as well as the press are making out oh i think he's he's playing as well as he has done in Oh, God knows how long. I, I, I mean, I, I think he always thought that Billy Vunapola blew hot and cold. He was obviously very eye-catching on, on, on the front foot. Terrific. How quick was he on the turn? What was his work rate like? Those were the kind of things you asked about him. He's been absolutely terrific. And and in, in, in fairness to the bloke, I mean, I think the best English number eight and the number eight with most potential by a country mile at the moment is Zach Mercer who is the darling of French rugby. There was a piece in the rugby paper last weekend saying, um, or a couple of weekends ago, saying exactly that. I mean, he's the hero of Montpellier. He's the most popular French-based uh, French English player since Wilkinson. He's got all the skills. He can do 20 things that Vunapola can't do. He's not as big or as direct as Vunapola. Cooch would have seen him hell of a lot at the, at the recreation ground. He's got terrific footwork. He's got, But anyway, he's not playing. A bit like a load of Wallabies who aren't playing for the self-same reason. Will Skelton's not playing for them at the moment. Sean McMahon's not playing. The Arnold brothers aren't around because of their selection policy. We have a selection policy that just rules one bloke out in the absence of Zach Mercer and who knows what will happen over the next 12 months. In the absence of him, Billy Vunapola has absolutely... N nailed his claim down and he's England's starting number eight for the for the immediate future for sure 
Gareth, come in on Zach Mercer. Did you see a lot of him then down at the rec when he was at Bath? Yeah, I did. I've seen a lot of him. And, and I think he always had them, them great feet. He had great step to him. He could go left and right. He had good hands. He'd spin out of tackles really well. The, the criticism that um, a few people had at Bath was his physicality. But by all accounts, some people I, I, I respect immensely have been watching him down in France and saying that since he's gone to France, he's he's actually really has been manning up, you know, and taking that Billy Volapola role where he will just drive in and make the hard guards as well as all the talented. So if you've got, you know, if you've got that side of the game to him, as well as his handling and his his footwork and everything else and his pace, you know, he's, he's quite rapid for an eight. Uh, I think you have got a, a, a contender for the World Cup. But, you know, going back, and I agree with both Chris and particularly Brendan, we are late in the game if we're talking World Cup. Um, straight after the, uh, the Japan final, I think changes should have been made. Uh, we went and wasted two Six Nations. Let's not be around the bush. We've wasted two Six Nations and put us two seasons or two years, whichever way you want to look at it, behind the curve. And and the rumours are that, you know, Eddie had to bring in youngsters. That was a remit of him staying on in bits and bobs and he's done that but now he's bringing back Billy so although Billy has been really really good down in Australia the World Cup is still another year away or so you know what's he going to be like in a year and if you put all your faith in somebody that you know is good but will he still be around when you've got some youngsters and Don Brandon Zach Mercer I would personally prefer to see them youngsters getting as many games under their belt, as many minutes on the rugby field as possible in an England shirt to put us in good stead for that World Cup. Going back to the Zach Mercer topic, do you not think the England pack as a unit performs better when they have that big go-forward guy at number eight, such as a Billy or a Don Brandt? Um, Personally, for me, that was England's best pack performance of the year. You may disagree. And I think having someone who's 125, 130 kilos and gives you that guaranteed go forward, which Zach Mercer doesn't necessarily offer, is very much instrumental in that unit performing together. Yeah, I, I agree. The, the game against Australia last week was the, the best England forwards performance I've seen for, you know, many a game, many a game. But they're against an Australian pack who are pretty, they're not the best things, you know. I know Wales are doing well against South Africa. If South Africa put their big side up, how would that go against England? I, I know what you're saying. You need a big number eight. You need a big bulk carrier. Somebody like a Dean Richards type back in my area that would take the ball and say, come on around me or cross the game line. And I'm not disagreeing that, uh, you know, a number eight, maybe Zach Mercer might not be able to do that role. But there is other people that can. And I just think that we've just got to go very careful with it. Uh, because he is such a fantastic player and have done so well for England over the years and have been a credit to English rugby, that we don't just, that just don't blind us and look, make us look that oh, we're settled for the World Cup with, with Billy, you know, with injuries, with age, you know, and I know as an old player, that happens overnight, you know, you're not quite as sharp as you used to be. So I, I just wouldn't like to put all our eggs in one basket on Billy and then all of a sudden in the World Cup, we are without Billy if that makes sense. Uh, but I agree with you. The England pack was manful last week and lovely to see. It always strikes me that at Bath, he, he was having to do way too much work. And I think the reason yeah. was, was that he didn't have the front five dominance that Bath used to have. So he was sort of trying to overcompensate. At Montpellier, he's operating behind huge lumps of South Africans and Georgians. And the front five takes care of itself when they put their first team out. So he's then suddenly got that platform as he to, to do everything that he does best and he brings the pace and speed that Montpellier need because they have 
have got such a heavy front five. So it depends which sort of England side is going to go forward. You know, if you had a monster front five, Zach Mercer would be absolutely deadly at number eight. Exactly, Brendan. If you're looking at the front row we've talked about with Gens, you know, a year on, the Gens, you know, Jamie George, Stewart, that sort of, or even uh, Sinclair. You know, you've got a, a front row that is world-class. You can compete with anybody. You know, you've got a Toji. We've always turned out plenty of big, big second rows. All of a sudden, you've got a front five that is great. And if you had a number eight like Billy, that's absolutely fine. But when you've got such a platform in the front foot, having somebody like Don Brand, who really is rapid off the base of Scrum, or Zach Mercer, or the likes of them, it really gives you another another, another arrow to your bow, really. You know, another another attacking option, a big attacking option. We're certainly not short of Grant in the, in, in the type five. And obviously the back row plays as a unit. Um, you're not short of Grant either ball, in ball carrying terms if Courtney Laws is at six and Tom Curry's at seven then you can you can you can afford to play to, to play some football from number eight with those guys I mean those are really aggressive front foot players both defensively and attacking wise and while I'm I'm still trying to recover from the irony of of, of Cooch pleading for props to play the full 80 minutes when I don't remember only because I kept getting sent off Chris <laughs> but but move, moving along, I mean, I, I I do think that England are generally are generally not wanting in size and physicality and force up front, where I do find them a little wanting at times in the very big games uh, against outstanding opposition. I think that they can be a little bit one-dimensional and they're a bit short of football. And I think Mercer is an X-factor player in the way that Vunapola once was, actually, when he first came into Test Rugby. He was pretty eye-catching. But, you know, people get used to you. People work you out. Cooch will know this. From all the players he played with at Bath, you always had to put something extra on your game. At the moment, Mercer could be one of those blokes who comes in relatively late to the international game and takes people by surprise because they'll watch him on the videos. Of course they will, but that's different to playing against a bloke. And I think he's the guy with the with the big future. It's just how you get him in under current selection policy, both from Eddie Jones' personal preferences and what the RFU want to see. Is, all, is there also a case for him to play somewhere that isn't number eight, at six, or maybe even in the row? I've never seen... I've never... I, I, I wouldn't put him second row, definitely. But you could probably play him somewhere else in the back row. The thing what gets Zach, what makes Zach at eight, is in a funny sort of way, it makes him tighter. It makes him, because he's naturally a loose player. He likes popping up outside centres, in, inside wingers. In, and, and at eight, he, he's sort of restricted to certain parts of the field. I know that sounds ridiculous to say. But if he was on the, on the flank somewhere, I think you may find that he could be you know, away with the clamps, you know, he could be here, there and everywhere rather than doing what you need him to do because um, that's just a sort of funny little thought would be. So I would prefer him at a minimum blind side, but that would be my my, my thoughts. Could stick him at 12. <laughs> I keep campaigning, <laughs> but we well, have so many numbers. That's another conversation at all. I'm, oh. I'm sorry, Chris and Brendan have got, got views on that. Oh, so. don't worry. We've expressed plenty and I kept campaigning for Sam Simmons to be uh, given a go at 12 um, yeah. because that's obviously a problem position. Why not throw Zach Mercer in there? Yeah. Um, but, but if you're talking Simmons, you know, there's another number eight. It's, um, you know, the brother could 
you know, where's he gone? What's happened with him? Yeah, no, very, very true. Now, we mentioned Ellis Gens. There was a moment on Saturday, and you'll all remember what it was, where Ellis Gens decided that he was going to sit down Michael Hooper, and that's exactly what happened. It sort of reminded me, do you guys remember that tackle on James Hask- from James Haskell on David Pocock? And that sort of set the tone for the match. It was a moment like that. Now, there'd been a lot of trash talk between Ellis Genge and a certain Taniela Tupo, which is a, a punch-up I certainly wouldn't want to get in the middle of. Gareth, do you like that sort of trash talk happening before the game? And, well, do you think Ellis Genge would have been taken some of that anger from the trash talk into that first carry? I'm not, I'm not one to prescribe to trash talk. It's a, for me, it's a load of trash literally you know it's it's media it's whatever you know if I didn't like anybody I'd wait until it was my time to play against him you know and that was that, that was always the law and I don't think it's changed too much you know but with modern rugby they're always waving to a linesman or waving to a ref talking to somebody or doing this so it's it's a different game now but no I don't think there's much it's a bit it's become a bit like boxing where you know oh they're the worst enemies they hate each other it's you know, it, it's, it, it all helps put bums on seats occasionally yeah. and stuff. But no, Ellis Genge and Hooper are, Hooper to me is a one-man show. Australia would be, they're not great, but they'd be very second second tier if it weren't for him. And the last two test matches, he's shown that. Genge has got the whole world in front of him. He's, uh, his scrummaging's improving all the time. He's a magnificent modern-day rugby player with ball in his hands, you know, who takes people on. In today's game... You know, there's obviously different standards of sending off in yellow cards in the game now um, for for player welfare, and there's not really don't you know you don't get a big punch up anymore. It would be a pulling, and quite rightly so. Can I say, you know, it would be a pulling of a shirt and growling. And for me, people who pull shirts and growl, you know, it's just a show. Really, it's uh, they all let their rugby do the talking because Ellen Gens is a, is a handful. He's a really good player. So happy that he's English. I think he's going to be a big name. I think he's going to be another sort of lock caps, a Jason Leonard type cap. Uh, he got most of the attributes from modern day rugby. And as for Hooper, he's, I think he's magnificent playing in the side pits. Don't really deserve him, in my view. Yeah, he's been a bit unfortunate with the timing. 10 years, 15 years too late, isn't he, Michael Hooper? Well, the thing is, is, you've got to say his career has been outstanding. Chris, come on. Come on in. Should we come on? He's on my the thing with Genge Cooch and 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 I mean you you've known him a fair old time. I mean he did have the potential of being the sort of Nick Kyrgios of English rugby, didn't he? I mean he, he you know he had he had plenty to say for himself. No one knew yeah. in the end what kind of discipline, self-discipline, and I'm not talking about that in a in a punch-up sense or in an aggressive sense, but the self-discipline of making the most of his talents, of making the most of himself as a rugby player. And that was a big question mark around Ellis for a long time. And he just seems to have come out through that tunnel and he knows exactly, he understands his own game. He understands his own personality a lot better than he did probably. And I, th- I agree with you. I mean, I think he, his, his potential is limitless. I mean, he comes from the same part of Bristol, same hours in the States as me. Uh, he played for the same junior club as me. Um, I know the family. You know, it's um, they're they're a nice working class family. And uh, what he's done is a bit like myself, no qualifications, but what he he has got, and Ellis again has got, is a is a is a vast rugby brain. He knows where to be at the right time, uh, and that's not always trained. That's a knack of knowing when to pick up, when to just get across the over the ball. 
when to make a tackle, where to hang around, where where the weak spots are in different sites. And uh, the only thing you could angle at him a few seasons ago was the scrummaging, but that seems to have come on leaps and bounds and getting better on the international stream, especially with scrummaging in today's rules. He's a perfect modern-day rugby player. He's young, he's great. Now, that's the sort of uh, person that I'm very excited to have seen in a year's time when he's got more games under his belt, more experience, playing in a Rugby World Cup. That's where England have got to try and do it. They've got to try and get six or seven of these players, you know, to be on form at that time next year in, in France. Uh, and Ellis Genge is well on the way of doing that. Yeah, spot on. And certainly in the conversation for for England's Player of the Year, I think we would all agree. Now, selection-wise, let's look ahead to this Saturday. Obviously, England's pack has been hit with a, another couple of blows. We had Tom Curry out after the first test, Underhill out and Itoje out. I think Jack Willis is a doubt, if I'm not mistaken, but I'm not sure that anything's been confirmed. Now, what are we expecting to happen, Brendan? I'll come to you about this. Obviously, Ludlam will likely come in. Keeping I would think there's six. a start for London pending, I would have thought, almost certainly. <laughs> Johnny Hill had a good second test. I was a bit fed up with him in the first test. I thought he was ill-disciplined. He was very, very lucky. He, had, he came back with a really good, solid second test. So I was going to say move Courtney Laws up, but probably not. So I, I think it's probably London's time to come in. And Chesham, because remember, you got someone in for a Toje as well. So Chesham in the second row. Uh, well, this, this is getting quite complicated now, isn't it? In that case, um, I'm not sure Chesham's a starter yet, uh, okay. to be absolutely honest. See what the other boys think. I, I didn't realise that, yes, you've got, you've got him to replace as well, who were the out. Now, I don't think Chesham's a starter yet. I think you'd have to choose between uh, you know Johnny Hill and Courtney, have the two of them there, I think. Okay, so move Courtney up and then Willis Ludlam back row. If Willis is, is, if Willis is okay, yeah. 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 Remember, remember Australia have got bigger problems than us with uh, injuries. Yeah. So, yeah. It's, you know, you could actually, you know, argue the case of let's see who they've got and, you know, put somebody nice and experienced against one of their um, green boys, if that makes sense, you know. So, well, speaking of these injuries, I think it's five concussions in two games. What's going on? Like, that's that's a lot. Yeah, I mean, I don't know whether that's just bad luck or whether there's an element of England's physicality or whether the Australian rugby at the moment have really conditioned themselves for this tour. Um, I would love to be a, a fly on the wall of the medical staff and find out exactly what's going on. But unless unless Chris and Brendan got any insight on it, I don't really... I can't put the finger on it. No. I think it's just a bit freakish, isn't it? Um, it is, yeah. I can't think there's any other reason. I mean, England are being physical, but they're not being outlandishly dirty or high shots. In fact, there's a fair bit of discipline generally. So I think it's just one of those runs and they'll, they'll probably go three or four matches without an injury now. Yeah. Uh, I don't think it's well, going to be more sinister so. than that. But, but certainly with their injuries, I think we're in a better position when we're being some, some of the, the boys we've got out. We've got very good options of changing the side around a bit where I think Australia is scraping the barrel and finding anybody in the pub that can put a, an amber and gold shirt on. You know, yeah. it's, uh, you know the, the pendulum has swung our way for the third test without a shadow of a doubt. Let's leave England Australia there um, and obviously look forward to this Saturday. It should, should certainly be a cracker of a test match regardless. And Gareth, I would like to yes. do your random rugby 15 now, if that's okay with you. Yeah, no worries. Yeah, 15 quick fire questions. Say as much or as little as you like. And when you're ready, we'll get going. What was the questions again? <laughs> 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 um, right. 
I'll get them on your WhatsApp app. No, so no, 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 no. I, yeah, I do you know what the questions are. Yeah, yeah, I know. But, them. But go, gonna... in there. Go, go for it. <laughs> Ollie, Ollie, I don't feel sorry for you. I used to have to do a column with this bloke. <laughs> I'm enjoying it. I'm rev- I'm, Wait, I, I, can I, I say, Ollie, I still ain't got my face up. Can you see uh, me? No, I can't. I'll leave so... it like that, kid. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Shut up, Brendan. Actually, you're looking well, son. Well, it's very good. <laughs> what do I do to get that up there? So. His beard's grown so long that it's just darkness over the camera. Along the bottom panel, you, um, like move your mouse along to the bottom of the Zoom panel and you should be able to see start video, stop video. So I've just stopped mine. His eyeballs are where my chin is. Oh, I got it. Here we go. Yeah, there we go. No, go back to how it was. <laughs> you bastards. <laughs> right, let's go. go. Nickname? Uh, Cooch. Yeah, do you want to explain Cooch? Uh, no, I've, ever since I was sort of five or six, people called me Cooch. My mum and dad used to call me Cooch. I think it was because I was quite fat and cuddly and they called me Coochie when I was younger. So that's the only reason I could think of it. Oh, that's sweet. Best rugby memory? Best rugby moment was, oh, that's a good one. I've, I've had lots and lots of great memories, uh, but I think probably winning the first John Player Cup for Bath. For a few years, we were the best Um and but not winning anything, then we beat Bristol in 1984, a long time ago. Stuart Barnes missed the last minute kick. He was playing for Bristol then, London Bath. Uh, but obviously, all the cups I've played in seven cup winners games in England in London. So all them games meant something. But that that first one for Bath was the one that sort of opened up the dam for us. Yeah, most embarrassing rugby memory. Uh, I never get embarrassed. But I would say getting sent off against, funny enough, Bristol again at the wreck, uh, and having to walk through the Bristol supporters on the on the on the far side, where I was getting many sticks. I'm a Bristolian, see, born and bred, but played for Bath. That was reasonably embarrassed. Um, I uh, I got a year's ban for that um, for wow. overzealous rucking on Bob Esford, who's now a personal friend. Seen him only last week. Uh, Clive Norlin was the referee, and uh, I ended up having 12 and a half months ban. We appealed to the RFU, and I ended up having 12 months ban. So the RFU, in their wisdom, gave me two weeks off. <laughs> there we are, back in the day. 12 and a half months. What did you do? Just shoulder to the head? No, no you're talking more modern rugby. Yeah, shoulder I know. to the head wasn't well, a problem. It was, it was in the days of rucking where the man and the ball came out at the same time quite often. And Brendan and Chris will remember that days. The, the New Zealanders, you know, were fantastic. They'd, they'd all link arms. They'd all go in on a rocket. You and the ball would come out. Um, and nobody moaned this, got on with it. But my mine was a little bit overzealous. So, And I was sent off the, year, the season before and got a, a six-week ban. So Somerset Rugby Union decided I needed a year. Nice. So that, in fact, that could double up. Is my uh, yeah? That's definitely my embarrassing moment. Yeah, yeah. Nice. Years for that. Yeah. <laughs> pre-game tune. We didn't have one. Okay. You know, we didn't have pre-game tune. You know, people had a little bit of. Remember in them days, it's Walkman. Not, 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 no, we didn't have tunes really. It was all self-motivated. Sound of silence. Yeah. 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 Post-game meal. Anything spicy. Nice. Saturday night, few beers, few ciders. Into town, Bath's a great city on a match day because the whole place is on top of each other, you know. So the whole city comes together, uh, a bit like French rugby with the little tanks all come together on a match day. So anything spicy, whether it was Thai, curry, whatever, we'd always end up somewhere eating spicy food. Best player you've played against? There's two. 
One was a young Graham Price. Well, I was young when I played Graham Price. Uh, the Lions in Wales in Pontypool, front row, tight head prop. Hard, hard man. Never throw a punch, never do anything. But, you know, he was just so tough. Um, and the other one was a Frenchman called Jean-Pierre Garraway. Um, and some of the boys remember him. He was a, a big French prop from the Basque region of the Pyrenees. And he didn't like the English one bit. Um, and he, he was a tough man. He was a tough one. Best player you've played with? Guscott, Jeremy Guscott. Um, he was very annoying. He was so talented. Uh, left hand, right hand, left boot, right boot. Um, I, I sort of was his mentor when he first joined Bath. But what a talent. Great player. He, he did what most sportsmen long to do. He just made things look easy. You know, if Underwood is going for the corner with his veins in his neck, going for the corner, you'd have Guscott just cruising. Jerry just cruising on the side saying, if you need me, give it here. You know, he was a, a great player. He's one of those players that would have played in any era and been a star. Um, certainly Jerry Guscott. Favourite player right now? Hooper from Australia. Because nice. I feel quite sorry for him in the fact that he's in a, a pretty woeful Australia side. And if it weren't for him, I can't see them winning the game ever. Uh, but he's just one man that just keeps them going with his pride, his passion, his ambition. His ability is fantastic. He's at the bottom of every ruck, getting balled around and pushed and pullered. His nose is always crooked after a game. And I just admire him. I think he's uh, he, he's, he's a pure international. He's very proud of being an Australian. So even though he is an Australian, he's my favourite player at the moment. No, good answer. Good justification, even if it is an Australian. Rugby, well, English I... English dad, Hooper, English dad, England There we go. Oh, well, there I'm we go. Yeah, he's always, got his English dad. Make you feel better. Rugby idol. Well, I, I've played with most of my idols, but I would say Gareth Edwards, only because my father loved him. God bless my dad, he's gone now. But he named me Gareth after Gareth Edwards, which was a bit of a cruel thing to do and then bring me up in Bristol. Um, so it was like calling a man, calling him Sue, really. It was uh, it was always problems for me. But yeah, Gareth Edwards, because my dad loved Favourite stadium? Wreck. Nice, uh, I yeah. still think the Wreck at Bath is a special play, place to play, especially when, you know, we won, which hasn't been happening recently. Uh, but the wreck is small, it's compact, it's beautiful. It's every pub, club, hotel comes alive on that day. It's not like if you're playing in Leicester or even Aston Gates or States, you know, where you've got to go somewhere to get to. You just walk 60, 70 yards and everything's blue, black and white. It's, uh, they just got to get some results from somewhere. Yeah. Sort of um, for me. Favorite gym exercise. <laughs> gym exercise. Chris Stewart is laughing. <laughs> I, I do like the drinks in the uh, confectionery machines. I do like them. <laughs> the um, anything that didn't involve cardio. Okay. I just, yeah. I just like bench and I like squatting and I like that sort of thing. Anything with running or rowing. Nah, not for me. Occupation if rugby didn't exist. <laughs> well, I think Chris will answer that one more than me. Uh, I was always thought of maybe going into the military, um, but rugby took over. I've, I've worked on nightclub doors. I've done this and done that. Um, and rugby has been pretty much a savior for me without going down the, um, you know, oh my God, the hard knocks stuff. Um, I think, you know, uh, rugby was a big savior for me. I'd have been very working class and probably in trouble most of my life. If you'd gone into the law, Cooch, you'd have got more than two weeks off your ban, though, wouldn't you? Yeah, <laughs> yeah, I would have done, yes. It's, it's reading and writing is a problem, Chris. <laughs> Superstitions. 
I always used to go out one from last. One so from when you last. came out on okay. top of it, please don't ask me all you have why. I'm not going it just to. happened that um, I went out for a bath last, you know, one from last, and that was where I always went out. I, I don't know why. It's like anything. You go out and get a good win, and you think, oh, that's it. You go out yeah. again, and you get another good win. And when you do lose the odd game, you don't think it's because of that. You, uh, it's because of some other getting it dropped a ball and uh, never you, uh, never you're too persistent. Rugby law, you would change. Oh, there's a lot. As an old ancient prop has been putting a ball in for a scrum so hookers can actually be hookers again would be one. And I think basically, it just since I've stopped playing, I just want to see, I want to see rugby. So I don't like reset scrums all the time. You know, if the if the if the scrum's gone down and nobody's injured and the ball's at number eight, don't reset. Just get on and play. You know, nobody's hurt. Nobody's get on with it. You can go back in the scrum and it not being illegal. Uh, every time the scrum goes back, the referee immediately blows no matter what. And it could be that you're just going back, you know, because another side's more powerful. It's not illegal to go back, to play on. Don't reset or give a penalty because a penalty inevitably means a line out, which means the hooker goes to the line out. The pack then talks for five minutes about where they're going to have their spicy food after the game. Then they go up and talk to the hooker. Then you have a line out. Well, you have 30 line outs a day and you're, you know, in a game and you're missing 10, 15 seconds of each one because of this nonsense that goes on and water coming on, scrums being reset. All of a sudden, out of 80 minutes, you know, you're actually watching 60 minutes of rugby. You know, and it, people pay a lot of money to watch a fantastic sport. Let's get on and play it. Point so there well I got off the I was, right? was going to say, I can feel the anger through the screen. Well, just, just, no, and you're absolutely right. And lastly, best thing about working in rugby? People. People, just the people, you know, for here and now, look, look, seeing Brendan and Chris, you know, I, I used to go on tour with them even when I wasn't playing, you know, we back in the day we'd have chess game, you know, and be with them. And then then I was involved with a travel company that used to take people abroad and we'd be, so it's just the touring, it's the people, it's all shapes and sizes, walks of life. Yeah, rugby people, are, you know, you get the odd twat, but most of them are normally very good people. <laughs> You get the odd twat. Am I allowed to say twat on this? Yeah, yeah, you are, oh, yeah. you are, you are. Yeah, okay. No, no worries. You'd already said bastard as well. I... Ah, whatever. <laughs> I could have said a lot worse, so, you know. Thank you for yeah. doing that, Gareth. Let's get no back problem. to um, the rugby. Now, New Zealand-Ireland is the next series I want to talk about, but particularly Saturday's game. Now, it was a weird test match in a lot of ways. Obviously, the big headline is that it's Ireland's first ever victory on New Zealand soil, and... You'd have to say with the current all-black outfit, Brendan, that this is as good a chance as the Irish would ever have had. Given the nature of the Test match, given the opposition they're up against, will this feel like a be- as big a win as that stat suggests? Actually, I think it is. I mean, Chris will have to help me out here, but how many teams have ever won a three-test series in New Zealand? I can think of Box in 37, Lyon 71. I think the Box might have done it one other time. We're talking about a very rare event, three-test series in New Zealand. I don't know if I'm alone. I didn't think they played that bad in the first test. It was a really odd test that. They should have. They scored three tries. They could have scored another four. Kiwi's got a couple of really strange turnover tries and a bit of rub with the green. So, so although you can't say New Zealand didn't deserve to win that first test, it was a, to me, it was a close one. It was, it was whether Andy Farrell could hold that together at the end of a long season and convince the troops that they were, you know, within inches of um, getting the win. And I thought, on Saturday, they were superb. I can't remember an All Blacks team so out of a match and outplayed. I mean, they're, they're only in the 22 about twice, once before half-time and once on the final whistle. 
totally comprehensive win and some you know great performances. You know, Johnny Sexton cops it left, right, and centre, but that was one of his best ever performances. Amani was great. Henshaw was great. I mean, in fact, they were all terrific. And and I noticed this morning that Goodwin over the Maori. You know, fancy having to come off the the lash and and get the boys out there and beat the Maori. You know, in Wellington. So there's something obviously quite good going on down there with Ireland. Of course, there'll be a backlash. New Zealand will come at them like bats out of hell. But I'd uh, I'd fancy Ireland to take that, and that would be an amazing achievement. And it might just you know, they, they've got into this cycle of always peaking before World Cups and it don't, you know, it absolutely haunts them. But actually, if you're, you know, given the choice of beating New Zealand away in July 2018 ahead of a World Cup in 15 months time or not, I think you'd take it, wouldn't you? And some some uh, some young players are coming on. So all good for Ireland, but a very big match. If they could close this out, that would be fantastic. I think that I think there's a very good case to be made to say that Ireland are a better side than New Zealand at the moment, generally, just, just on a straight comparison. I think over the last couple of years, this has been coming. I think this has been coming to the All Blacks probably since the 2015 World Cup victory, which was, a, that, that was a great All Black side by any standards. But the Titans have gone one by one, haven't they? Your Conrad Smiths, obviously your McCalls and Carters, but a couple of others as well. They were missing Sam Whitelock on Saturday, he left a massive hole, a massive hole. And they're not easy to replace those people, not even in New Zealand. And I think Ireland have made incremental, steady, very impressive progress for two or three years now. I think Andy Farrell and indeed Mike Catt have got a lot of stick and across his career in England. I mean, Cooch will know him better than most. Uh, but, you know, Ireland's attacking game is pretty impressive. And I think they understand their game. I think they're confident. I think Weddington is probably, is traditionally the place where the Blacks are most beatable. It's their weakest stronghold. I think it's a fascinating game. And actually, I would make Ireland certainly joint favourites for the game, if not slightly better. I agree. I think this Irish side and the French side, if you're looking at World Cup or the Northern Hemisphere, flag bearers, really. But the... the, the the Irish have just got this thumbprint on the New Zealanders. And the first time ever you see the New Zealanders quite vulnerable against a side that they're nervous about. And they are nervous against the, the Irish. And, and as Chris was saying, that not only is it just the cat sort of outside, you know, ball attacking, it's the defence of the Irish. They really know how to get in and unsettle the All Blacks, you know. They commit men to the ruts when they got to and they all out when they don't. And, um, they just seem to know. And of course, the Irish mentally know that they can beat the All Blacks. They've done it several times in recent years. So um, the All Blacks will be up for it. There will be a backlash, but I think they'll be very nervous as well. And if the Irish can start well, first 20 minutes, which they've done in the last two tests, in fairness, because uh, as I, I agree with Brendan, that first test, for the first 20 minutes, Ireland were all over them. Um, it was only that sort of freakish couple of tries that the All Blacks scored in that 10-minute period that changed the game. Uh, and I think if, if Ireland come out firing as they have done in the first 20 minutes, you know, I, I, I think the All Blacks will have to play extremely well to, 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 to take this test series. I think yeah. Ireland's in with the shout. I, I think also it's, it's worth pointing out because I think the blokes still underrated. It's not often with the All Blacks that you see, even when they lost the odd one, 
they've always had the best seven on the field. I mean, even his greatest Cooper and Pocock were, they were up against McCall. But crikey, that Josh van der Flyer has turned into one heck of a player. He is absolutely on his game. And I thought he was tremendous on Saturday. Tremendous. And a lot of people get on Sam Kane's back. I don't think he's as bad a player as people are making out. And he's a tough nut. And I'm sure he's a very good leader. And he gets people around him. But but the Irish guy, I think, is one of those blokes who's making a difference at the moment. I'm not sure they have an answer to him. It's been a weird U-turn in the tour, hasn't it? Because there was a, the drubbing by the Maori All Blacks and then the drubbing in the first test. And all of a sudden, in the space of four days, two wins on the trot now for counting that Maori game. It feels like I'm going to play devil's advocate here. And would a drubbing... Again, say the All Blacks do bite back and they do have a tendency to do this where they dip and then they double down and blow the Irish out of the park. Is it still a successful tour now regardless, having got that first win against an All Blacks team that you know is now their lowest ever world ranking, fourth? New Zealand media being the New Zealand media with their ex- expectations, they're throwing out the term crisis. Could it be twisted to be seen as a non- an unsuccessful tour if they get smashed twice and have that win in the middle? But I, I, I'll just jump in before the experts. I, I, I don't think they got smashed in that first test. It looked like they got smashed with the points difference. But anybody who watched that game, it was, it was, it was. I agree with Brendan. It was sort of a freakish sort, sort of. It was a strange game in so many ways. And Ireland played a lot better than people are, are saying they did. And they look at the scoreboard and go, "Oh, all black stuff." The Irish, they didn't. I don't think they did particularly. Um, I think the Irish side are. A good side. I, I think whatever happens on this tour, they've proven that they can beat anybody in the world. And that anybody in the world could be a semi-final of a World Cup or a final of a World Cup. It's it's for Ireland. It's about to win a World Cup, you need to put four or five games solidly in, in a row. And Saturday will show me whether or not this Ireland side could be on that consistently good. I mean, I, I think they're a very good shout for the World Cup. The great question is Sexton, isn't it? In World Cup terms, can Sexton get to the World Cup fully fit, not vulnerable? People are going to go after him. They know his record now. You know, yeah, we all know what, what rugby's like. There is a vulnerability about Sexton because he's had that many... Well, and, and also, Chris, he tackles like a back row forward. Of course, of course. You know? And if he, gets, if he gets there in one piece as a full Johnny Sexton, they've got a hell of a chance. And if he doesn't, that would be a massive body blow. And it's a really sort of difficult dilemma, isn't it? Dynamic. I mean, I think Joey Carver is a good player. But of course, he doesn't get the the game time um, because Johnny Sexton almost only exclusively plays test rugby and lends to knockout matches these days. That's Johnny's year. So there's, you know, if Carver could have another five, six full test starts under his belt, he might, you know, and they did lose Johnny on the eve of the World Cup. I don't think it'd be an absolute disaster, but I don't know where he fits those matches in. Well, a Sexton injury like in um, in the Six Nations where Carberry came in against France, that would be yeah. the only way you see it happening, wouldn't it? Now, let's look at New Zealand very quickly. They're lacking spark and attack. We said that Ireland's attack blew New Zealand away. New Zealand are lacking a certain something in attack. And, well, there's, a, there's hallmarks of England here or echoes of England in that they have an issue with the 12 shirt. Do you guys see a solution to that? I think I think uh, Havili is probably the best twelve option they have at the moment. But it, but it is an it is an issue. If if you've gone through years with Carter and Nonu and Smith, and yeah. fair enough, in the ten position, 
crikey, they've they've got some options. I mean, Moenga Moenga's a terrific player. Bowden Barrett is a terrific player, especially if somebody's going to do the goal kicking for him because he's not that reliable off the tee. But the centres, they have simply they simply have not replaced Nonu and Conrad Smith, who were who were magnificent together. I mean, they were they were absolute, you know trendsetters, they were market leaders, and you lose them simultaneously, and you've got some problems, because Conrad Smith was the brains of that, was the brains, absolutely the brains of that all-black midfield. And they've, they've not gone close to replacing them. Given that it's fairly admittedly a problem position, is this the game? I mean, you, Roger Tuovasa-Shek has gone brilliantly for the Blues. He's played 12 with Rico Ioani at 13, so they could you know unite that match-up. Would this be as good a game as any to give him a go and see what he's got on the international stage in rugby union? Perfectly, possibly. Um, but the, the, the thing, the thing is that I think I find the twelve position fascinating. I mean, crikey, England, England have had their knickers in a twist over this for for Lord knows how long. I mean, how well did Farrell just attitudinally and goal kicking wise? He means so much to that England side, and people want him out. There is load. There are loads of people out there who want Owen Farrell out of the England side. I, I think that any coach would be very loath to lose him because he brings so much attitude and and just doggedness and ferocity and all the abstractions of the game. And that's very, very important. He may not be everyone's idea of a 12. So you switch that over to New Zealand and you've got a guy who I think has come out of league. Has he not? Well, yeah. people talk about Sonny Bill Williams as a legend. How often, when everyone was fit, did the All Blacks pick him in their starting side? You can carry it on one hand. Yeah, and that was obviously after Nonu and Smith were both gone. It wasn't often. It was, it was never often. They brought them off the bench. That's fine. All the skills in the world. But, but as Cooch was saying earlier about Ellis Genge, there is such a thing as, as game understanding, game instinct, all those things that you are basically uncoachable. You coach yourself in those things. And I'm not, sh- I'm not sure that... Um, <laughs> that league recruits, and I don't want to use the word Sam and Burgess in the same sentence ever again. I've had my say on that, and I'm now bored with the subject. But it just, it, it ain't that easy. You can have all the skills in the world. If you don't have the instincts, you're not going to be an absolute pinpoint peak international player. Yeah. Isn't it amazing how that midfield selection just sort of haunts so many nations, doesn't it? I mean, it's haunted England. I think about New Zealand. Do you remember... Christian Cullen, the best fullback in the world, probably the second best wing in the world. They tried to make a centre, didn't they, before the 1999 World Cup. And you knew the moment they started doing that, they were going down Queer Street. And now you've got Ione, really, really class wing uh, in the Lions series. They, they now think he's an outside centre. Now, he's got some skills, hasn't he? He's got a great outside burst, but that's about a third of being a centre, isn't it? You've got to be able to defend, you've got to be able to combine, you've got to be able to pass. And it just seems a bit panicky that they're going down that route again to me. So um, for New Zealand, England, France. France have got it together when they've got their midfield together and got uh, Dante in uh, and got people playing in the right position. So it's it's a really, really crucial selection, 12-13. Well, 10-12-13. Very, very quickly, uh, before we move on to South Africa versus Wales, I want to get your predictions for this one. Because I think... One of you, I can't remember who said they were backing Ireland, but one of you did. I want to know if it's a clean sweep or backing Ireland. I'll back Ireland. Brendan backing Ireland. Chris, I, 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 I can I can see Ireland not by many. I can I can see Ireland by a score. Okay, Gareth. I actually think New Zealand will win a really tight one, but can I say 
It's been a great tour for Ireland and they will get better for the World Cup because of it. I'll go New Zealand as well. Split down the middle, two and two. Obviously, we'll see you on Saturday. Yeah, make sure you set your alarms for that one because that is that is momentous, um, certainly. And last but not least, another slightly interesting and, ma- and contentious tale, which is Wales's first win on South African soil. 14 changes before that game in the South African side. 14 changes in the starting lineup, 19 in the match day 23. Does that take the sting out of that a little bit, Gareth? What did you make of that many changes? Obviously, I know we're sort of, we keep saying this is a trial for the World Cup, etc. But a test match is a test match. Well, yeah, you know, when it was, when all the sort of the the white noise was being talked about for the game, everybody's saying, oh, they're devaluing the game. I always felt that the proof was in the pudding. And, you know, um, if South Africa went on to win that game, they could just say, you know, we're building for World Cups. You know, we've got a great squad. We're giving everybody minutes on the field. The fact is they lost, but they nearly won uh, with a, to use second team, but it basically was. They've now, I believe, resorted to type and have got all their their big World Cup match winning DNA arm wrestling monsters back in the side. And I think Wells will struggle Saturday, but Wells will be very pleased with this tour. You know, the first game they just lost, the second game they just won. They've got young players. I mean, Tom Rafael from Leicester has been absolutely breathtaking for me. And he, he was going to be my favourite player at the moment. Because he just, he just, he's like an old-fashioned wing forward, you know. He's he's in face wherever the boy. He's got a great engine on him. He keeps running and running and running. But I think Wells have done well. And Bigger have been a good captain. They've scrummaged reasonably well against a big uh, South African back. And let's not be around the bus. Whoever South Africa picks, they're going to be a good quality side. So for Wells to get that second. Test victory. I thought that was all credit to them, and uh, and they can build on that. You know, they, no matter what happens this Saturday, they they don't have too many rock stars. Wells, do they these days? They're, they're, a, they're compared to what they were a few years ago. They're probably a pretty low profile side by Welsh standards. Uh, and and I th- I, I often think with them that they're only sort of two heavy defeats away from thinking themselves that they're not any good. So that will do a massive amount for their confidence. Yeah. Um, I, I, admi- I admire them massively because it's it's. You know, on paper, it's not. It's far from the strongest Welsh side you've ever seen. And to yes, there were a lot of changes, but there was still a fair bit of muscle flying around up front, particularly when they brought people like Vincent Cock and Malcolm Marks off the off the um, off the bench. And Wales won that game late against a better side than they started against. Yeah, and that's all their character and strength. And, and yeah, I complete. I really admire their application, and and of course they are stylistically, tactically, strategically, quite well suited to playing against the Springboks. They do give them a, a pretty hard time. I've done in recent years. They generally give them quite a hard time because they, they, they I mean, they tackle like stink. There's a lot of Gatlin hangover about Wales um, in, 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 in terms of their disciplines. And I think they're just, a, they're, 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 a side, they're a side they can be proud of. And there's a dog barking, but there's, they are a side they can, that Wales can be proud of. I thought they were terrific on Saturday. I don't start my dog going. <laughs> oh dear. Yeah, my dog has that reaction to the front door every single time. Okay. Well, the dog has thrown me off a little bit. Um, well, Chris has oh, disappeared. I think, I think he's gone somewhere with his poo bag. So I don't know where to go. Exactly. Now, we mentioned Tommy Raffle and the Wales back row has been fairly remarkable, uh, particularly on Saturday, but it, as a unit, went very well in the first test match as well. Where Dan Lydiot is rejuvenated. 
Tommy Raffel, you know, Tolupe Falatao is playing as well as he has, you know, pre all his injury issues. You don't even, you know, Tane Basham, he was a, he was a, a big topic of discussion in the Six Nations. Josh Navidi, when he's back from injury, is always in and about. Jack Morgan, good problems to have, right? Falatao yeah. is an extraordinary player. I mean, he has almost as, as many injury problems as, as you know, anybody you know. And he's always seems to be just coming back from injury, but he always hits the ground, doesn't he? And I mean, the last two matches, he's been absolutely superb. And in fact, looked, I thought, particularly athletic, particularly quick, trim, around the park. And I just don't know where these modern day guys get this fitness without putting in, you know, as you were coaching the old days, you know, playing 35 matches a season. I don't know how many matches Talupi plays a season, 15, 10, 15 with injuries and that, but he looked absolutely on it. And yet again, a reminder of what a remarkable player he is. And when he's good, he is absolutely fantastic. And this is the thing in this, I feel like in this t- test um, series, more than the England series or the Ireland series, you've had a few players emerge and actually stake a genuine claim for the shirt. We keep saying how France, you have 12, 13 players that you can say, okay, they'll be starting in France's best team. Now, Wales, well, Chris, could you name a few that have sta- staked their absolute claim? Nick Tompkins, one of them. Valatau, obviously, should he stay fit, has reproved himself. Well, I, I, was, I attended a, um, a Welsh rugby writer's anniversary dinner only uh, about a week before their Wales left for South Africa, and Wayne Pivak was there. And he was very clear that he, that he saw this tour as a put your hand up, you know, where are you? Put your hand up for, for, for World Cup, you know, um, consideration. And he, he'll, he'll come back with a few of those. For sure. I think I think they've done pretty well in the front row, actually. I mean, they get biffed around every now and again. Most times do against the, the, the box when they get a set piece wrong. Cooch would know more about that than me. But I, you know, that's a, that's quite a young front row. Um, and it's a it's a youngish second row. You know, Adam Beard is, you know, not Alan Wynne Jones, neither is Will Rowlands. Um, but they're pretty good at the line out as long as the hooker throws straight. Um Rafael was really, really pushed strongly. I think George North does look like a, a 13 with, with you know, something going for him. They're terrific on the wings. I mean, Reece Dammit's caught the eye again. Josh Adams catches the eye again. I mean, they, they are they are very, very good at hanging in games and taking chances. And there are people who can replace the sort of tiring titans of old, all your Alan Wynne-Joneses. He's on the bench now, Alan. And, you know, they don't need him to be on the bench. They don't actually need him at all. Now, they can get through really hard games without a bloke who's got virtually 150 caps under his under his, um, under his his wing. So, as far as I'm concerned, I think they return. Whatever happens on Saturday, I don't think they'll lose really heavily. Whatever happens on Saturday, I think they come back with their tails up. I actually think it's out of all the summer tours, the Welsh have been the most successful. And I say that because we knew Ireland's a good side and we knew they've got a bit of a a thumbprint on New Zealand and we knew it was going to be a tight series. England, Australia are both equally, barring injuries, there or thereabouts. But I defy anybody to tell me deep down that when Wells said they were going to South Africa and that includes any Welsh I know, they all said, oh my God, what a tour, we're going to get absolutely smashed. And they haven't. You know, for lots of various reasons, through togetherness, um, to collective will, to a couple of individuals, but as Chris alluded to, they're not the best well side that they have ever put the the red shirt on. 
but they just they just seem to work for each other. And when you look at the tours, England, Australia, you know, England could win, Ireland, New Zealand could win. Everybody well is off. So if you're looking at success on the tour, I think the Welsh will come back with uh, more brownie points than any other. South African selection has been released. Ten changes, which we kind of expected to be fair. So it looked, you know, they've brought they've brought back the heavyweights. Yeah. What has to happen for a Wales win this weekend? They won't be favourites with all these changes coming back. Is it possible? Yes, because I sorry, I, I, because South Africa aren't in New Zealand where they click and score. Five tries, you know, or they, they they usually still, even when they win well, they do the same thing. They kick for position, they are wrestle you into submission, then they might score a couple late on. If well start well, um, the game will end up tight, I in my view. Um, and with a bit of luck in the following win, they're getting about South Africa's uh South Africans, it, it could go well's way. I think the safe and sensible money would still be on. South Africa winning the game, but I think it'd be tighter than what people think. Set piece is crucial, isn't it, Cooch? Set yeah. piece is absolutely yeah. crucial. If Wales get blown away, if the Hooker has a rough day against against Diaga and Etzebeth and um and 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 that very effective South African line out, you know, you England playing that out in the 2007 World Cup final. If you don't win a line out all game, you you will lose the game, clearly. I mean, you know, it's not just against South Africa, that's pretty much against anyone. But South Africa are pretty well drilled at scrum and line out. If Wales stack up there and Bigger has a decent day with the boot, I, th- I think they'll be I think they'll be hanging around in the last 10 minutes with possibly, you know, possibly a score behind, but it's still there to be won. Another very exciting test match. And you know what? These summer series have actually have worked out pretty damn well, haven't they? Now, Bigger, Dan Bigger said that anyone can beat anyone. And if you take the Scotland series, which you haven't touched upon, the England series, the Wales series, the Ireland series, North versus South, it's four and four. North four, South four. It was a clean sweep for the Southern Hemisphere two weeks ago. And last weekend, it was a clean sweep for the Northern Hemisphere. Just questions to the floor. How exciting is that with a World Cup next year? Has world rugby ever been tighter than it is now? Obviously, maybe France apart. And with Georgia beating Italy as well. And Georgia beating Italy. Yeah, that's right. I, I think it's I think it's terrific for a sport with a whole bag of problems, which we've spoken about in previous podcasts about around injuries and laws and all the rest of it. I think that the the, the three test model is abs- is absolutely terrific. I mean, you have to. You can't afford to have these people go in, you know, half-baked, not, you know, taking weak squads, which used to go which used to go on in the past. I think that if you're going to have these tours, then make it a proper series, make it competitive. And, you know, Ireland clearly have identified that New Zealand tour from a long way out and have prepared extremely well for it. Um, England, you never quite know with Eddie. But, and obviously Wales have gone to South Africa with a key objective in mind, and that's to find some realistic World Cup options, and they've done it. And it's been fantastic to see these sides do what they've done. It's been thrilling. A little a oh, nod sorry. to France here as well. I think France, the whole French thing for the last two or three years has been building, and it's just raised the tone of the Six Nations, about the excitement about the Six Nations, uh, excitement about France, but also how to beat them, how to match them. And that's just lifted everything. And I think Six Nations international rugby is now in a very good place. And we are yeah. we're getting a you know um, a good snapshot snapshot of that now as they go down south. Uh, I'd say it's it's you know by the end of the three matches, the three series, um, it'll probably be pretty much even, which is where we are. But yeah. that's pretty rare for the North to be actually even, Stevens, yeah. with the South 
15 months out from the World Cup. You know, that England era apart, that's pretty rare. So that's that's very encouraging. Uh, and, uh, and as Chris was saying, uh, a nod to Georgia for beating pretty strong Italy side. They were missing a few, but they weren't missing that many. Uh, and yeah. they got well beaten. Final nod, guys. Have you seen Twitter for Rodrigo Fernandez, Chile number 10, absolute mud bath in Santiago. They were playing this World Cup final qualifier against US Eagles. Pretty ordinary match, but in very, very difficult conditions. But he scored one of the best tries you'll ever see from about 80 yards eight out. Beat seven or eight defenders. And, you know, it would grace um, Cardiff Arms Park on a nice day. Uh, but the mud heat that was Santiago, it was it was surreal to watch. He's out there on Twitter and World Rugby and all that sort of stuff. And uh, there's some rugby talent in some odd parts of the world. Uh, Chile is not one you'd normally uh, expect, although they have improved quite a bit recently. But that's well worth trying to um, trying to watch and enjoy. I'll give that a look. You said it was on Twitter, yeah? I've certainly seen it. Twitter's where I've seen it. I think World okay. Rugby might have posted it on their site as well. All right. Well, let's all go and give that a look then. But no, it is. It's it's exciting, and it is exciting to have a northern hemisphere that can pretty much match the south. And who knows? in the next episode, what we'll be looking at. We could well be looking at three Northern Hemisphere wins, three Southern Hemisphere wins, or four, sorry, if you include Scotland, Argentina, or a mix and match. It'll be very, very interesting, and I'm really looking forward to the next episode for the rundown on those summer tests. Guys, thank you very much for joining me, and we'll see you next week. Thanks, everyone. Yeah, thank you so much, Gareth. See you soon. Great to see you. Take care, mate. As always, the Rugby Paper is available in stores on Sundays or through a digital subscription. You can have it delivered straight to you. As you can hear, Saturday will be fairly blockbuster, so strap in and we look forward to seeing you next week to review it all.